The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. At the end of Jonah 3, there's this astounding miracle. Jonah has shared this very short message that after 40 days, the people would be judged and Nineveh would be overthrown. And then the totally unexpected happens. The people trust God, turn from their violence, and God gives them mercy. And we would expect the next verse to read, and the prophet Jonah went home rejoicing. And that is not how it goes. And once again, this prodigal prophet surprises us. In chapter 1, verse 2, the word of the Lord came, and every reader thinks, oh, great, good things happen when God speaks. Think of Genesis 1. But Jonah runs from the Lord. And here Jonah is angry at the Lord. So the title of today's sermon is Angry at God. Chapter 1, I called Running from God. Chapter 2, I called Crying Out to God. Chapter 3, Turning to God. But today, chapter 4, Angry at God. And if you have a pew Bible, turn to page 921. You'll want to be where the Bible is. Open there in your copy of God's Word to Jonah 4, or use a pew Bible and turn to page 921 as we see Jonah angry at God and what we can and must learn from this. You would ask why Jonah 4 even exists? You would think the happy ending is chapter 3. But ironically, chapter 4 is the climax and the point of the entire book. And so we'll spend two weeks on it. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. Let's look now at Jonah's response to God's mercy. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The word exceedingly has only been used in Jonah to describe massive things, like the densely populated city of Nineveh, or the great fish, or the great terror and awe that the sailors had. Here it's described of Jonah's response. Let's put it in colloquial English. Jonah is not a little mad. He's a lot mad. He's very, very angry. He's actually hating what God has done. He is as mad as he has ever been. And he tells us why. Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord, more like a angry complaint. Oh Lord, is not this what I said? It'd be easy to read over that in, in English. In Hebrew, it's, this was my word. It's as if he's saying, you know, you had your word, but then I had my word. And my word was better than your word. Your word, Lord, at best was ill thought out. But my word, I was right. What I said was going to happen is what happened. He's telling God, see God, I told you so. Let's continue in verse 2. Is not this what I said when I told you so when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here he quotes part of Exodus 34, 6 through 7. To remind you what's happening in Exodus 34, this is when God reveals his name to Moses. And his very name includes these attributes. Now Jonah is throwing back in God's face his very name. 
the attributes that millions have praised God for, Jonah is livid about. So let's notice each of these five attributes so we understand what it is that has made Jonah so mad. All right, here's the first one. God is gracious. This is God's attitude towards all of us who are undeserving. The second one, God is merciful or compassionate. It's used to describe the way a mother is tender towards her child, naturally in favor of him, for him or her. The third word, slow to anger, is God's incredible patience and long-suffering. The fourth word, abounding in steadfast love, it's God's covenantal loyal love that he is abundant in, where he does not turn away from those who it would be easy to turn away from. And the fifth one, Naham, just one word in Hebrew, relenting from disaster, is that God is so gracious that he often withholds the calamity that people deserve and instead gives mercy. These are the five perfections of God that Jonah hates. How much does he hate him? Let's see in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. In these handful of verses, Jonah will use the word I or my nine times. In contrast to the Lord's perfections, essentially Jonah is saying this, God, if you are God in the way you choose to be, I don't want to live in your world. I don't want to live in a world in which God is God. I should make these decisions. I should determine these outcomes. But as long as you are, I'd rather die. Jonah's concern for himself is set against God's perfections. So let's slow down here. Why is Jonah so mad that once again he wants to die? One author puts it this way. Jonah's praying for death because the Lord's attributes so frequently a cause of praise have become loathsome. But let me put it in my own words. I think there are two reasons Jonah wants to die. Jonah is so furious at God, number one, for God's full nature, that God is all of his attributes all the time. Not only is he holy and just, but he's also compassionate and gracious and loving. But here's the second reason Jonah is so mad at God, not only because of God's full nature, but also secondly because of God's free expression of his nature. God decides how he extends his grace and mercy. In fact, Jonah already quoted part of Exodus 34. The Lord is slow to anger, compassionate. But the part he didn't quote is Exodus 33, where God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Jonah does not like God's full nature or his free decision to sovereignly extend his grace as he wills. Jonah's furious at this. Commentators and scholars have struggled for centuries to make sense of how Jonah could be this angry. I'm going to share four historical views and then again, return the plane to mine. (laughs) But here are the four common ones that people have come up with. Some people have argued the reason Jonah is so angry that he wants to die is because he's profoundly embarrassed. John Calvin actually had this view. He argued that Jonah does not want to be thought of as a vain or lying prophet. And if he said God would bring judgment and then God brings mercy, Jonah doesn't want to lose face. Probable, but probably not the main reason. A second common reason that's given is because of narrow-minded Hebrew nationalism. This is closer 
Remember, in 2 Kings 14 is when Jonah is actually first introduced. He serves as a prophet to Jeroboam when Israel's borders are expanded and Assyria is pushed back. So Jonah has a history of a concern for the Hebrews, but not for anybody that would be considered an enemy to them. A third common guess is that maybe Jonah, as a prophet, was aware that in just about 50 years' time, 722 B.C., Assyria would be the cause of Israel's downfall. And so now he doesn't want them to perpetuate and one day be the hand of judgment against Israel. Again, probable. The fourth one is God's joy to give grace to other is Jonah's anger. And I think that's closer to what we're reading here. I'm going to again state my case. I think Jonah is angry for two reasons. One, he is livid at God for his full attributes, all of them. And he's livid at God for his free expression of them, how he gives grace to whom he wills. And here's what that all implies. Jonah must believe that some people like him deserve God's love and other people not like him don't deserve God's love. Daniel Timmer writes, as we have seen, God's grace per se, is not onerous to Jonah. Jonah's not against God's grace in theory. He simply hates grace shown to those he thinks don't deserve it. Now, let me remind you of the context of Exodus 34. When the Lord says, I am God, and my name is slow to mercy and abounding in steadfast love, do you remember what had just happened? In chapter 32, the newly formed Israelites, who had just been given a covenant, decided to betray the Lord with a golden calf. On that night, God then says to them, I am the Lord, slow to mercy, abounding in steadfast love, compassionate. The only difference actually between Israel and Nineveh is Nineveh repented. All that Israel had was Moses who interceded on their behalf. In other words, God's grace was not ever anything to do with Israel. God's grace was something to do with his nature and his free expression of his grace. Precisely what Jonah is so mad about. In the excellent book, The Whole Christ, Sinclair Ferguson puts on this danger, his finger on this danger that we all have, and here's what he says. The Pharisees were men who believed in the holiness of God and in his law and in his supernatural reality and in predestination and election. Grace was a big idea to the Pharisees. But the Pharisees believed in conditional grace. At the end of the day, it was because of something in them that God was gracious to them. This is the exact error that Jonah is making and an error we all can make. And Jonah 4 is letting us know something important. God's grace is freely given, not because of a condition we meet or because of a merit in us, but because of who God is. And so now look in verse 4. After Jonah's explosion, here is the Lord's response. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? What a great question. Some translations write, are you right to be angry? That's not nearly as helpful because he's not asking him if you're technically in the right or wrong. He's asking Jonah essentially, how's this working out for you? Do you do well to be angry? Now let's... Let the text do what it's supposed to do. See, Jonah has a character flaw so deep that he's had it for his whole life. 
And he never would have known he had it until the combination of pressures that have led to this moment. And so do all of us. All of us have a character flaw so deep that you go through life not aware that you have it. And then in the right circumstances, it explodes. And you say, where did that come from? And it's been there all along. And the next time that happens to you, and out of you rushes this deeply suppressed anger, hear God say to you, do you do well to be angry? See, Jonah is now learning something that he has suppressed his whole life, and I want to make sure we understand this. There is a massive difference between your theological affirmations and the feeling you have unexpressed in your heart. And in some moments, it'll surface. And then you'll find out how you actually feel about God and how you feel about other people. The old theologians, and I owe Sinclair Ferguson for this one too, used to call that your tincture. It's from the old Latin word tinctura, and it means to dye a cloth. The cloth hasn't changed, but it's a different hue. And all of us have deeply felt, but unexpressed, we normally would never say it, but deep in our hearts we feel a certain way about what we think God is like. Perhaps we haven't been around someone for years, and they visit us, and they say, man, you just seem different. That's what they're referring to. You have a difference. You're colder or harsher or more impatient. You don't think you're any different, but there's a different tincture because your heart doesn't actually feel the way God should be felt about. Galatians 2 is my favorite example of this. Peter, who has received so much grace from Jesus, doesn't want to sit with people who he thinks aren't worthy of sitting with. And Paul comes to him in Galatians 2, verse 11, and confronts him publicly. But hear this phrase and think about tincture. When I saw that Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So he knows it, but he doesn't feel the gospel grace that he affirms intellectually. And brothers and sisters, all of us who are believers can somehow over time forget that we only are what we are because of free, undeserved grace given to us that we had no claim to. I had an example of this in our church in Michigan years ago. Don't worry, someday I'll tell stories about you in in Raleigh. (laughs) So this was years ago. There was a a couple, I don't even remember how we first met them. I think Steph met them at the library and uh, invited them to church. And they honestly had a, a rough background, rough, rough, Situation. So we were really excited about them coming. And we invited them over to lunch after church. We planned it all out. It was Easter Sunday. They came to church, and when they, they got there, I don't think they'd ever been to church in their life. And so the guy was wearing a baseball hat in, in church. Now, I'm preaching, so I'm trying to pay attention to that. I heard a lot of this story later. I guess while he was in church, one of the older men in our church went back to him and accosted him for wearing a hat in church. He like hit it off his head and said something like, son, don't you know, we don't do stuff like that here. Now, this guy's never been in church in his life. It was horrible in terms of his experience. 
But here's how the story ends. That man, later that afternoon, an, an older man who had knocked the hat off the visitor, came to my house with tears in his eyes and said, Josh, I don't know why I did that today. I am so, so sorry that I did that. I forgot 40 years ago what it was like when I went to church and how gracious people were with me and how gracious God was with me. And he apologized to the visitor. And what returned for him that day was the original tincture of salvation. And this is what we all lose over time. Jonah's a believer. He no longer feels joy that God is gracious. Do we? Now verse 5. Look at what Jonah does. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade till he should see what become of the city. Please don't miss how concerned he is about his own comfort. Jonah takes great pains to make sure he's in the shade, he's at a safe distance, and that he can watch what he still somehow hopes will be raining fire. If you think, well, how do we know that? Well, because we know that God has already said at the end of Jonah chapter 3 that he is relented from the judgment that they would have received. God's already pronounced they are going to receive mercy. They've already trusted God and turned from their violence. There's no reason for Jonah to stay and watch unless he hopes that somehow there will be a reversal and they will be judged. Here's what I want you to catch from this. It's so easy to think, well, I, I'm i fine with other people. I mean, I'm not doing anything against them. But don't you see that withdrawing from other people is the same? If If you're so angry that you try to hurt people, that is equally as sinful as being so angry as withdrawing from them and just hoping that they fail on their own. Neither of those are the engaging, pursuing love of God. God's love requires engagement. To withdraw in cool indifference is the same thing as hot hatred. See, in Matthew 12, a very important text for understanding Jonah, Jesus explains that someone greater than Jonah is here. He points out a point of similarity between himself and Jonah. And the point of similarity is this. Jonah, for three days and three nights, was in the belly of a fish near death. Jesus, for three days and three nights, will actually experience death. But friend, that is where the similarity ends. Everything else between Jonah and Jesus is by contrast. Let me point out one. Jonah here has gone east of the city to sit on a hill in personal comfort and hope to watch the people there burn. Jesus, when he was east of the city of Jerusalem, wept over their lostness. And then he descended down to that very city of people who had opposed him and God the Father, and he let them crucify him. See, Jonah is reluctant. Jesus is willing. Jonah complained about God's call. Jesus went like a lamb before its shearers in submissive silence. Jonah cared very much about his comfort. Jesus was stripped and scourged. Jonah preached 
and left his audience to perish. Jesus preached and perished in the place of his audience. The dissimilarities are incredible. Now in the climax of the book, verses 6 through 11, God teaches a profound lesson, and we're going to slow down here so that we can see the lesson. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. Actually, we're going to freeze even here. Lord God. Seems like a small detail, but it it isn't. Throughout the book, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, has only been used by Jonah. It's only the Hebrew word for our personal covenantal God. Jonah sort of slipped and let the sailors hear it. God has only been used for the secular, the Gentiles, the People of Nineveh only use that word because that's the only one they ever got from Jonah. So there's something significant already here. Derek Kidner notes that this use of Lord and God together is a textbook example of the covenantal God of Israel being a veiled beyond Israel. Also, the use of Lord and God together, John Walton notes in his commentary, indicates that perhaps God wants Jonah to consider what it's like to know God outside of covenantal God. Here's what Walton writes. He wants to put Jonah in Nineveh's shoes to help Jonah evaluate whether his anger is justified. That will help you understand why God does the object lesson he's about to do. You see? So Jonah, you want to know what it's like if you don't have me as covenant God? This is what it's like. You want to know what it's like if not everybody else had me as covenant God? This is what it's like. Now, the next word is really important, too. The word appointed. Don't you remember that one from Jonah? God appointed the great fish. He ordained the storm. He ordained all these things that have happened. And here now, God appoints something new, an unusual plant. For what purpose? Be moved by the goodness of God. In verse 6, God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Have you thought about that lately? God is so good that he actually cares about the comfort of even his stubborn, pouting believers. In Matthew 6, Jesus said this, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow and thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, do not be anxious. See, God, who spoke galaxies beyond our purview into existence, is so good that he cares about the smallest details for the comfort of his creatures. And Jonah is happy. Verse 6 ends, So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Notice again the word exceedingly. He was as happy in verse 6 as he was mad in verse 1. Let me quote Smith and Page. The last clause in the verse, Jonah was very, very happy, is both fascinating and tragic. Literally, the text says that Jonah rejoiced over the vine with great rejoicing. He was not just happy, he was deliriously happy. The miraculous growth of the vine caused Jonah to experience an emotion otherwise unrecorded in the book. This is the only time he's ever happy. He did not experience this emotion either in his own deliverance from certain drowning and death or from the mass turning of the people of Nineveh. His happiness was induced by a plant for his own comfort. Through the lesson, 
in verse 6, God communicates, Jonah, I appoint all the blessings in your life. Having me as your good God is why you enjoy all these gifts. But now God teaches the lesson from another angle. Look at verse 7 and 8. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed. Don't miss the word. He appointed the one and he's appointing the other. A worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. You know, the, the irony of this is all throughout the book, there's been a threat of destruction. But the only thing that's ever destroyed in Jonah is the plant. Why? What, what is God doing here? I mean, he appointed the, verse six maybe is easier. He, he gives him comfort and he blesses him and he does all these good things for him. But what is the point of verse seven and eight? Why does he now appoint scorching wind and no comfort from the heat? Again, I think there's two answers. Here they are. Number one, Jonah, this is what it's like when people don't have my grace. You really want other people to not experience the grace that I gave you? The comfort and the protection? Douglas Stewart writes, what right do we have to demand that God should favor us and not others? God is showing Jonah by him experiencing the heat. This is what you want a Nineveh to experience. How do you like a small taste of it? There's a second lesson, though, too. God appointed the blessings in verse 6. Now God is appointing the pain in verse 7 and 8. And God can appoint either for wise, loving, and good purposes. You know, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, he wrote so many other poems that have never been set to music. Any of you that are musician, please set this one to music. It's titled, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. Here's what Newton wrote. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, that's the old English word for the vine or the plant here in Jonah 4, and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling crowd? Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Newton is right. Why did God remove the gourd? So that God could remove the sinful pride. Notice how Jonah responds though in verse 8. And Jonah asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. If you've been keeping score, this is now the third time in the book that Jonah has tried to die. In chapter 1, he wants to be thrown overboard because he'd rather die than carry out God's will. In chapter 4, verse 1, he'd rather die than see God forgive people. And now here in chapter 4, verse 8, he'd rather die than have to learn from God. Wolf writes, Jonah neither wished to live under the governance of free grace, nor was he prepared to live in a government without grace. Isn't that the rub for all of us? 
We want to live in a world in which we are God, but we actually need to live in a world in which God is God. Now verse 9, God asked a second time. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? This time Jonah snaps back. And Jonah said, Yes, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And now God drives the lesson home in verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pity, this key word, you have compassion, you have mercy, you have concern, you care deeply for the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? You see God's point. I care about everyone and everything that I have made. I am the creator. Everything is given life and breath from me. I care deeply for them. You believe in me. Why wouldn't you have the kind of care and compassion that I have? That phrase at the end, they know neither their right hand from their left, does not mean moral innocence. It means complicit moral ignorance. They were evil. They they realized they were evil. In chapter 3, verse 8, the king said, let us turn from our evil ways. God is not saying that they're worthy. He's just saying that he gives mercy. He has compassion. Even on cattle, everything that he's made. And there again, we are confronted with the core conflict of the book. Why does God care so deeply about which his people care so little? Why does God have such a great heart when even his believers have such a hard heart? And now let me give four contrasts between God and Jonah to help us see the contrast of the book. Here's the first contrast between these two. Number one, God is selfless and Jonah is selfish. See, in verse 11, God was saying that Jonah has deep concern flowing inward for what he's going through, but God has deep concern flowing outward for those in need. Have you noticed in your own life how easy it is to grieve over something that affects you? You still remember that thing you lost, that thing that was broken, that vase that was your grandma's. You might remember it for 30 years. I can't believe this thing that was mine was broken or taken or lost. It matters so much to me. Jonah wants to receive God's grace and not be changed by it. And he wants to snatch God's grace from those who are being changed by it. Number two, God is patient while Jonah is angry. Probably the most popular quality about God is his love until he applies it. (laughs) Then there's anger and pushback of, well, I don't think you're doing it the way you should be doing it. Jonah is angry and displeased at what God is happy about. Third, God has pity for the condemned while Jonah is critical and condescending. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells this, Wonderful example of a person who misses the beam in their own eye, but notices the speck in another. And Jonah is so clear at the violence 
and wickedness of the Ninevites. And he's so blind to the violence and anger of his own heart and anger that would see them all killed. There's a question here that's implied. It's as if God is saying to him, it's as if God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, I'm so merciful, I'll forgive Nineveh, their violence, and I'm so merciful, I'll forgive you, your anger. Just humble yourself and receive me. I don't know if any of you have white coat syndrome. I don't like going to doctors very much. I remember uh, when Evangeline was only six days old. She's our oldest, you know, our first girl. She's six days old. She was only six pounds. I had her in my arm, and the doctor comes out with this big needle. And I remember thinking, you know, do what you got to do, but as much as you make her cry, I'm going to make you cry when this thing is over. I don't like going to doctors. It's difficult for me. Imagine, though, you're the kind of person that goes to a doctor, and every attempt the doctor has to heal you, any attempt they have to pull out any instrument or write any recommendation, you object. What do you think you're doing with that? Do you even know what you're writing? I don't think you're aware of what my symptoms are. I don't agree. At some point, they would put down their stethoscope and look at you and say, you know, I think until you accept the role of patient and I accept the role of doctor, there's nothing we can do together. Here in this text, it's as if God is telling Jonah, Jonah, until you accept the role of creature and allow me to accept the role of creator, there's no way forward. Jonah's critique of God makes it impossible for God to be God. Number four, God's grace is amazing and extravagant, while Jonah's grasp of grace is greedy and self-serving. G.V. Smith writes, God does have justice against sin, but in his great love he waits patiently. He gives graciously. He forgives mercifully. To experience the grace of God and not want his grace to be extended to others is a tragedy we must all avoid. Messengers of God can neither limit the grace of God nor control its distribution. So what's the rest of the story? What happens with Jonah next? Well, many positions have been given, and they all have a tribe of adherence. One common position is that Jonah repented, and many have suggested this because they're assuming Jonah wrote the book and wrote in such damning detail about himself to reveal God's greater grace. And I would Really love to believe that. I hope that is the case. We just don't know from the text. But actually, there's a very good reason we don't know. Look at Jonah 4.11 again. What a stunning ending. The book ends with a rhetorical question. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Do you see what's happening? The last question, it's like God has a rhetorical spear and he hurls it, but it doesn't hit Jonah. It goes through the pages of the book and it hits us, the reader. See, this whole time, if you've been thinking, I thank thee, God, that I am not like this Jonah. Now, when you come to Jonah 4.11, you realize the whole book's been about us. We too think that we reserve the right to only follow God's will if it fits with my plans. We too think that we reserve the right 
to only accept God's providence when it fits my preferences. We too think we've earned the position to sit at the top of a hill and evaluate what God is doing and put him in a position where we judge him. Has the spear hit its mark yet? God is hurling it at our hearts if we'll receive it. I want to give a specific application for us as a church in terms of how God's been convicting me about the book. Emmanuel, will we care enough to pursue people far from God with hope of God giving them grace through an initially hard-to-hear message? Will we care enough to engage with grace, even if the message has elements of it hard to hear in 40 days, or repent and believe, turn to Christ? See, the hard truth about our hearts is exposed. Do you hate the thought of certain people being saved? Or even worse, and more subtly, do you just lack concern about the thousands around you who are far from God. God has always been more concerned about reaching the world than we are. See, this passage shows us that it's so easy to start thinking that we have earned or inherited a position with the covenant God for our benefit and then to close our heart of compassion on those who are still far from it. I believe it's no coincidence that in Acts 10, God gives Peter a vision that the grace of God will now be extended to Cornelius, a Gentile. And like Jonah, Peter argues with God. And do you know what city he receives the vision in? Joppa. God returns thematically what he has begun here about 800 years earlier, that God has a heart for all peoples. And he wants to send those who have received his grace to be a conduit of his grace to everyone. I want to give you four very practical suggestions for all of us, particularly as a church. Uh, here are things that I, I pray that we will do practically. First, let us all learn about our Nineveh. Who are the people around us that need the Lord? Who are the people that God has ordained in your purview? Maybe you've never noticed that they're there all the time. But they're there for this reason, so that God's grace can go to them. I was really thankful last month. We've been praying about trying to introduce places of need uh, to people in our church and seeing what God would do with it. And so at homecoming, we had several groups come, and one of them is Gateway Women's Care. And Gateway Women's Care helps women, particularly NC State students who are pregnant, to wrestle through how to handle that well, to encourage them towards having this child and to encourage them to be loved from beginning to end by the love of Christ. Now, when we called that group, our prayer and hope was that that would not be a one Sunday thing, but that it would perpetuate beyond that. So I was really, really thankful a couple of weeks ago when one of our ladies connected with that group and started a relationship with them. And right now our church is in the process of building a bridge there so that hopefully in future years, Ladies who are in such a situation, our church will provide financially for them to have a baby shower, to provide all the immediate needs, and to walk alongside of them with loving grace from beginning to end. That is so encouraging to me. Learn about those around you. 
And let me go further. Especially admit the people around you who you naturally don't like. Think of those who, because of their skin color or their gender or their socioeconomic status or their education level, are people you would prefer not to hang around. Those are probably exactly the ones that the Lord is nudging you towards. And pray something like this, God, I need Christ's heart. Help me, Lord, to have the heart of Christ towards the people around me and to move towards them. So second, first was learn about your Nineveh. Second is go to your Nineveh. Let me tell you another testimony that was super encouraging to me. This happened last weekend. A guy in our church, to make a very long, convoluted story short, a guy in our church heard about a man that he was sort of tangentially related to who was dying in Winston-Salem. And all he was told to do, essentially, was to pray for him. But he did more. He decided to drive and visit this person at the hospital because this person he knew was not a Christian. So he drove to Winston-Salem to the hospital and shared the gospel with this person. He was dying, and so he wasn't lucid on every trip. But on one of the trips, as the gospel was shared to him, the man said this. He said, I've lived in sin my whole life. And you're telling me I can be forgiven now? How is that fair? And that's where the book of Jonah is very helpful. <laughs> and the, the man from our church ended up preaching that man's funeral in the chapel in the hospital at Winston-Salem, not for sure knowing exactly how that man responded, but knowing for sure that God is merciful to any who come to Christ. So number one, learn about your Nineveh. Number two, go to your Nineveh. Number three, send and pray for your Nineveh. I'm so grateful. Our church has been so generous in so many ways. Last month, we had the blessing of hosting the international students from NC State again. It was the first one of the year. And so we were anticipating about 80 students. We had about 60 students. But you were so generous, you gave so much that we have had a lot of pizza left left over. For two weeks, it's been in the fridge upstairs. And we have an office have tried to do our dutiful role to consume that pizza Um in unrelated news, Hunter and I aren't feeling very well today. <laughs> I am so grateful, though, for your generosity as a church. And don't, don't we all have so many things God's given us that, honestly, we should just let them go so that God's grace can go to other people? We should just freely say, man, God's been so good to me. How can I open my home? How can I give? How can I use my time in a way that other people would hear about Christ? Didn't Jesus say something profound when he said, um, actually the harvest is plentiful, it's just that the laborers are few. We've never had a problem of not enough harvest, ever. We've always had a labor shortage problem. I don't normally do this on a Sunday. I'm, I'm going to today. A very specific way you can show grace has come to a point where we need to make a decision. Here's what it is. There's a guy named Jack from Nicaragua. He comes to our church on Wednesday nights. He lives in Hickory, but he works in Raleigh, and that's why he's here pretty much every single Wednesday. Now, he's from Nicaragua, and he's a heart for people that are still there. And there's a 24- and 26-year-old brother and sister from there who are moving here but have no place to stay. So for three or four months, we have called the Raleigh Baptist Association, the Baptist on Mission, 
the North Carolina Baptists. We've called every single possible group, and we've struck out on all of them. All of them said no. My response to that was not super godly. I remember thinking, why? You know, that's your purpose, right? But the Lord hit me Thursday. Thursday, I was walking through here, praying for the sermon and praying for you. And the Lord pressed on my conscience, well, I have a reason for withholding those groups. And maybe it's so that one of us will be the house that just gives a room to two people coming from a place of need and coming to our country who just need a place to stay for a couple months. Um, pray about that and think about that. They'll, they'll pay rent. They just need a room for a couple months. But we should all at least think, what if I have to be inconvenienced in order for grace to go through me? Am I willing to be inconvenienced? And that leads me to a final application for us. If we're to be a church of grace, then we're a church where God's grace sends people with the message. Romans 10 famously says, how shall they hear unless they have a preacher? And how shall they have a preacher unless he is sent? So let us be a place where God's grace is not greedily clutched, but but open-handedly given. Christian, I think there's so much application here for us. We, we have one more week on it. But one more word to you. Perhaps this morning you've been visiting week after week and you're not a believer. And throughout the book of Jonah, you've been thinking, man, Nineveh is pretty messed up. Jonah, he's kind of a schmuck, but, but I'm fine. You know, here's what I hope you, you see. God is trying to graciously show you something, friend. You need his grace too. You need his mercy too. There is no one in this room today who doesn't deserve the judgment of God. But there's also no one in this room today to whom God does not offer his son Jesus in mercy. And everything we need is in him. Come to him and receive him. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you for grace that is greater than our sin. This morning we sang, our sins are many and his mercy is more. But the concern of Jonah is not what we say or what we sing, but what we feel in the depths of our heart. Because all of us have a tincture that you know perfectly. And we can probably fool a lot of people around us until just the right circumstances cause it to explode. And then when it bubbles up, it's like you're saying to us, do you do well to be angry? And then we have to confront the fact, I don't deserve God's grace at all. And yet God is willing to give it freely and fully to anyone. And I need it much more than I think I do. And the people around me need it. And you've put me here to share it. Lord, please humble us so that we don't so proudly think that we're better people, so that we're not so quickly angry and critical of others. And make us willing emissaries that whatever you tell us to do, we say, okay. Whatever providentially you give or withhold, we say, okay. Because we know it's all of grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.